Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new friends in the African nation of Zimbabwe did recently, last alphabetically, but first in our hearts for sure. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. And on that note, I actually have to issue a quick apology to Raw Attitude podcast fan StuHave1987. Why? Because he did indeed write a five-star review way back in April, but I just saw it now. One quick clarification for any fans outside of the United States who write a review. The only way I can see what you write is if I switch my default iTunes country from the USA to whatever your country is. iTunes only shows me the American reviews, since that's where I live. As such, if you're based outside the old US of A and write a review, you might want to send me a tweet or an email to let me know you did it, just so I'll see it as soon as possible. Otherwise, it may take me a little while to go country by country and find them all. So with that being said, my apologies to British listener StuHave1987. Back in April, he wrote, Thoroughly enjoyable show. Last year, I watched all the Raws and Smackdowns from the start of 1998 to WrestleMania 17 on the network for the first time since watching them growing up. It's now really enjoyable to listen to these reviews and see if he agrees with the bits that I thought were awesome, slash amusing, slash cringy, slash confusing, slash truly awful. Oh, and it also helps that the hours pass quicker at work. Keep up the good work. Love it. Awesome review there. So thank you very much, StuHave1987. And again, my apologies for taking so long to read that review. And also, that's pretty amazing that you also went through every episode of Raw from the Attitude Era, because that makes me feel slightly less insane for taking on this challenge. I hope I can do the rest of these episodes justice for you. Now, here on our timeline, we are one episode away from the Royal Rumble. So yes, I will be bringing in a special guest to recap that show with me. He did such a good job with December's Rock Bottom pay-per-view that I had to bring him back for January as well. So yes, my special guest will indeed be Sal from the WrestleMania Salvation Podcast. We'll be covering not only the Rumble, but also the following night's episode of Raw, so be sure to tune in for that, because it will be fantastic. Alright, so with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, January 18th, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the Montagna Center in Beaumont, Texas. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same city include four other episodes of Raw, three episodes of Sunday Night Heat, three episodes of Wrestling Challenge, and a single episode of WCW Thunder. None of them really all that noteworthy, though. And an important thing to note is that this episode of Raw airs on Martin Luther King Day in 1999, and I believe this marks the debut of Vince McMahon's MLK Day intro that was shown at the beginning of Raw for so many years. 
Today, here in the United States, we celebrate the life of an extraordinary man who had a dream. A dream of unity, a dream of peace. Long live the dream. From there, we queue up the opening credits and a very brief scanning of the crowd, but interestingly, no pyro this week. We jump right into the action tonight, but of course, I'm obligated to mention some of the noteworthy signs in the crowd, and unfortunately, I only found a few good ones, notably... Road Dog is God, Austin Rules Goldberg is Trailer Park Trash, Mr. McMahon is My Hero, and Stone Cold Please Whoop My Ass. Beaumont, Texas, not exactly bringing their A-game when it comes to the signs. And so we begin the episode with Stone Cold Steve Austin heading to the ring, and as you might expect, he receives a massive ovation from the fans in his home state. Michael Cole is standing in the ring with a microphone, which means that Jerry the King Lawler is by himself on commentary, and he starts us off with a doozy of a line. Quote, He is the number one entry in the most star-studded Royal Rumble in history. Spoiler alert for the 1999 Royal Rumble, it is anything but star-studded. So Michael Cole begins by asking Austin a question, and Stone Cold immediately just takes the microphone from him, so Cole goes right back to his usual commentary position. And you know what? Since Stone Cold does such a good job outlining the events which have led us up to this point, I'll go ahead and play his promo for you here. At the Royal Rumble, Mr. McMahon has said he has no chance in hell. Steve, welcome back. We haven't heard from you in weeks, but we're now six days away from the Royal Rumble. And you will enter the Royal Rumble match at number one. Before we talk about the Royal Rumble... Before we talk about the Royal Rumble, let's go back a couple of weeks to Monday Night Raw when in this very ring, the look on Vince McMahon's face when he damn near pissed his pants when mankind beat The Rock fair and square, one, two, three, right in the middle of this ring to become the World Wrestling Federation champion. Yeah, well, you had something to do with that, Austin. And I give Mick Foley credit because he is one tough bastard. But also, as far as you're concerned, mankind, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that you are a deserving and respected World Wrestling Federation champion. Now here's where we go with the bad news. The bad news, Mick Foley, is that when the bell rings to start the match at WrestleMania, you'll be in this corner, there'll be a referee somewhere around here, and over in this corner, the son of a bitch that's gonna be right here is Stone Cold Steve Austin. That's if he wins the Rumble match this Sunday. No chance in hell. Now going in, going into the Royal Rumble, no one knows better than Steve Austin, that this could be my last opportunity at a title shot here in the World Wrestling Federation because Vince McMahon drew Steve Austin as man number one in the Royal Rumble. And on top of that, put a $100,000 bounty on my head, which means every son of a bitch that comes through there and comes in this ring is going to be looking to throw Steve Austin's ass over the top rope. But, oh, no. There ain't no way that that's going to happen.
Vince, you thought you were some kind of mastermind when you made yourself the 30th man in the rubble. Oh, no, that came back and bit you on your ass when Commissioner Shawn Michaels made you man number two in the Royal Rumble. So thinking about this for the last week, I'll ask you people the same two questions I've been asking myself. If you want me to beat Vince McMahon's ass all night long, give me a hell yeah. The other question is, if you want me to win the Royal Rumble, give me another hell yeah. That's exactly what I thought, so I say this. Vince McMahon, I'm going to beat your ass all night long. On top of that, I will win the Royal Rumble. And when all the smoke is cleared and the last son of a bitch has been sent flying over these top ropes, when the smoke is cleared, bitch, you will know that Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. From there, Stone Cold then exits the ring, grabs a beer, stands on top of the announce table, and proceeds to chug a Steve Weiser. This Sunday, he'll enter the Royal Rumble at number one, and unless he wins the match for the third year in a row, he will not be able to compete for the WWF title at WrestleMania 15. On top of that, Vince McMahon has put a $100,000 bounty on his head, so whoever eliminates him from the Rumble will be getting a healthy bonus. The deck certainly appears to be stacked against the Texas Rattlesnake, but will he be able to overcome the odds and become only the second man to ever win the Rumble after entering number one? Well, Sal and I will certainly cover that next time out. And after a commercial break, we go back to the arena for our first match of the evening, and it is for the WWF Hardcore Championship. Champion The Road Dog versus Challenger Gangrel. If you recall last week on Raw, after Triple H defeated Edge, Gangrel and Christian then came to the ring and attacked Hunter. That caused DX to run up from backstage to help out, but then the lights went out, and when they came back on, the Road Dog had received a bloodbath. So tonight, the D.O.G. has the chance to get some revenge on the leader of the brood. Amusingly, in his pre-match promo, Road Dog tells us that his name isn't Buffy, but tonight he's going to be a vampire slayer. Good stuff. And strangely this week, it appears that WWF didn't bother to bring their usual stage and ramp setup because we can see that it's just a flat surface when people walk out from backstage. Why does that kind of suck? Because it means that we don't get Gangrel's customary coming up through hell entrance. Instead, they just have some candelabras set up for him to walk past in the aisle. Not quite as cool, I have to say. And right off the bat, Road Dog proceeds to pop me yet again, because when Gangrel is doing his usual pre-match ritual of standing on the ring steps and drinking blood, Dog simply sneaks up on him and breaks a kendo stick over the back of his head. Honestly, I feel like more of Gangrel's opponents should probably give that a shot. It just makes too much sense. In short order, both men go over the guardrail and start fighting among the fans, and in the background we can clearly see a kid who is probably 10 years old at most doing the suck-it gesture toward his own dick. Remember how this was around the time when there were always news stories of kids getting in trouble at school for crotch chopping or flipping the bird because they saw it on Raw? Good times. Good times. No, wait, let me rephrase that. Bad parenting. That's, that's what I meant to say. Bad parenting. So both men make their way over the guardrail, where Road Dog then pulls a table out from under the ring. He brings it in and sets it up, but Gangrel regains the momentum by hitting him with a completely legal low blow. And from there, 
Gangrel picks Road Dog up and nails him with a really nice looking power bomb right through the table. Gangrel then falls down to the mat and takes a few seconds before covering Road Dog, but when he does, he only gets a two count. That's right, a power bomb through a table only gets a two. Let's just say once a certain tag team comes to the WWF toward the end of the year, there won't be many people getting up so quickly from table spots. So Road Dog then manages to hit Gangrel with a DDT on top of the broken table shards, and he rolls back outside the ring, where he then pulls out another table. This time, however, instead of bringing it inside the ring, he sets it up on the arena floor. And it was at this point that I remembered it was this match. Certainly the match itself is not famous, but I remember this part of it because, well, let's just say things don't quite go as planned. Allow me to explain. So Road Dog and Gangrel proceed to brawl outside the ring, where Road Dog then hits Gangrel in the stomach with a chair and positions him on top of the table. The D.O.G. then jumps up to the ring apron and hits Gangrel with a diving elbow drop, but the table doesn't break. Road Dog then goes back up to the apron and basically just jumps off, landing ass first on top of Gangrel, which does cause the table to sag a little bit in the middle. But not content with that, Road Dog then goes into the ring climbs to the second rope, and hits another diving elbow drop, which finally causes the table to fully collapse. Now, just to repeat, Gangrel was hit with two moves from the ring apron and one from the middle rope, and yet, despite all of that, he makes it back to his feet before Road Dog does. Great job of selling there. However, shortly after that, Road Dog suplexes Gangrel onto the broken table, followed by not one but two chair shots to the skull, because this is, of course, the Attitude Era, and brain cells are overrated. From there, Road Dog simply covers Gangrel outside the ring near the broken table and gets the three count. Your winner, and still the WWF Hardcore Champion, the Road Dog Jesse James. Another fun hardcore match here, despite that pesky table refusing to sell. And for the record, Michael Cole informs us that even though he just cleanly lost this match... Gangrel will face X-Pac for the European title at the Royal Rumble. Because clearly, that makes a lot of sense. Apparently, Gangrel's strategy is to fail upward, and it's working. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena, where we once again hear the Outlaws music playing, because Billy Gunn is coming to the ring to face Test. A couple things to note about Test here. Number one, they've already gotten rid of his harmonica theme music in favor of a theme which kind of sounds like the big boss man's instead. And number two, he comes to the ring wearing a shirt which says, Guns don't kill people, I kill people, which is the exact same phrase that Happy Gilmore's boss has on his t-shirt in that classic movie. But I suppose the bigger picture here is that Test is admitting to the world that he's a murderer. And apparently he's such a big fan of guns that he's even facing a wrestler tonight whose name is Gun. Now that's dedication. And speaking of Billy Gunn, before the match begins, he cuts a quick promo about how he's going to win the Intercontinental title at the Royal Rumble from, quote, Samrock. So yes, let's just say there's a reason why Road Dog is the mouthpiece of this group. By now, everybody should know that Mr. Ass has his title shot at the Royal Rumble for the Intercontinental title. Now, if you don't think I'm going to whip Samrock's ass for it, I got two words for you. And in case you need a quick reminder, last week, Ken, Samrock's sister, was seated ringside, and Mr. Ass proceeded to live up to his name by mooning her, which caused a brawl between Billy and Shamrock. 
and later on in the night, Test eliminated Mr. Ass from the Corporate Royal Rumble, so there's actually some nice backstory built up here. And by the way, go back and watch that Corporate Royal Rumble just to see Test hip-toss Billy over the top rope. Got a huge reaction from the crowd, and it looked really good. But as for tonight's match, unfortunately, it was a pretty blah five-minute affair. Frankly, I expected more from these two, but alas. The finish of the match came when Test Irish whipped Billy off the ropes and ducked down to give him a backdrop, but instead, Mr. Ass responded by hitting him with a rocker dropper. However, before Billy could pin Test, your WWF Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock ran out from backstage and clotheslined him, resulting in a disqualification. Shamrock then continued beating on Billy, including an interesting spot where they both went to the ring apron, Shamrock grabbed Billy by his hair, and they both jumped to the floor, with Shamrock smacking Billy face-first into the announce table. And then, despite the fact that WWF referees and officials were now surrounding the ringside area, Shamrock continued his carnage by taking off the top part of the steel steps, putting Billy on them, and locking the ankle lock on him as he frantically tapped the stairs. Eventually, Shamrock relinquished the hold and started destroying things, notably knocking over the timekeeper's table. We also got an amusing spot where referee Tim White was trying to calm Shamrock down, but when Shamrock started walking toward him, Tim accidentally fell backwards and smacked his arm on the ring steps. Whoopsie. From there, Shamrock grabbed the timekeeper's hammer, and with the fans loudly chanting, Shamrock sucks, he motioned as though he was about to throw the hammer into the crowd, and I legitimately thought he might do it. One thing you can say about Shamrock, he plays a very convincing psychopath. Mercifully, however, he drops the hammer and heads backstage. After that, Michael Cole then says he's going to kick us into a segment discussing the WWF's upcoming commercial, which will air during the Super Bowl, but this gets edited out of the WWE Network broadcast entirely. Fun fact, though, what actually aired was not related to a Super Bowl commercial, but rather they instead showed an ad for something called Halftime Heat, which will air, as you could probably guess, during halftime of the Super Bowl. More on that in the coming weeks. And after a commercial break, we then go backstage, where a WWF doctor is working on Billy Gunn's ankle as Road Dog stands by for emotional support. Jerry Lawler tells us that Billy's ankle has to be broken, or at the very least sprained, which should certainly affect him during his match with Shamrock at the Royal Rumble. I've got to say, they've actually done a really good job building up this feud over the past several weeks. Credit where it's due, I'm actually looking forward to this Shamrock-Billy Gun match because I literally don't have any recollection whatsoever of how it all plays out, so, uh, no spoilers, please. And before we finish here, I do have one more quick piece of trivia for you regarding this Ken Shamrock-Billy Gun feud. If you flash back to almost two years prior on the March 17th, 1997 episode of Raw, Billy beat a random jobber and then challenged Shamrock to come into the ring to face him. Now, remember, this was before Shamrock officially debuted as an in-ring competitor, and they were trying to portray him as a threat in advance, so of course, he accepted Billy's challenge. In short order, Shamrock put the ankle lock on Billy Gunn, and that resulted in the very first tap-out in WWF history. Up to that point, wrestlers had still been doing the verbal submissions or the nodding their head yes to signal that they gave up, but this marked the beginning of the transition to tap-outs, which obviously continues to this day. And it's kind of funny if you listen to it when Billy taps, because the fans don't really react very much, since they basically have no way of knowing that this is now a thing. Shamrock's an animal, I'm telling you. Who cares? Shamrock will snap on him. Shamrock now, with a tight waist right behind him. There you go, Billy. Uh-huh. He set him up.
so, yes, this Shamrock-Billy Gun rivalry is clearly much more historic than you realized. Or maybe I'm just reaching too far to give it more significance. Whatever. So anyway, we then go backstage, where Kevin Kelly is standing by with Owen Hart, Jeff Jarrett, and Deborah. In case you need a reminder, Owen and Jarrett beat the New Age Outlaws on Raw last week to earn a shot at the WWF Tag Team Champions, Ken Shamrock and the Big Boss Man, and that match will take place on Raw one week from tonight. And amusingly, when Owen is speaking, Shamrock and the Boss Man then proceed to show up out of nowhere and attack them. So yes, literally right before the commercial break, Shamrock was beating the shit out of Billy Gunn, and no more than five minutes later, he's now moved on to attacking Jarrett and Owen. Clearly, the man cannot be stopped. From there, Jerry Lawler introduces us to another montage of Shane McMahon training Vince for the Royal Rumble match. I had actually completely forgotten about this one, but it's also pretty funny. This time, Vince is actually in the ring beating up random people, including trainer Tom Pritchard, as well as several masked jobbers. I'd recommend seeking out this clip purely for the visual of Vince hitting Pritchard with a stone-cold stunner, followed by flipping him off and jawjacking him, a la Steve Austin. Vince then tosses several people over the top rope as Shane cheers him on with a megaphone. And we close with Vince repeating the theme of this year's pay-per-view. When it comes to Stone Cold's chances on Sunday, he has no chance in hell. From there, we cut backstage again where we see the big boss man beating up Mankind? Yes, just a few seconds ago, Boss Man and Shamrock were beating up Owen and Jarrett, but now Boss Man is elsewhere backstage, taking it to Mankind. Your guess is as good as mine with this booking, folks. As a reminder, Mankind is your WWF champion, but when we cut backstage, he's getting his ass kicked by Boss Man. Just like last week, they're really making him look like a very weak champion. Michael Cole informs us that Mankind and Boss Man actually have a hardcore rules match scheduled for later tonight, so I guess they started a bit early. Eventually, Mankind does get the better of Boss Man, and he threw him right into the cameraman, which causes the feed to cut out. And so, from there, we segue back into the arena, where it's time for our next match, Dan the Beast Severn versus Steve Blackman. Yes, that's right, Dan Severn is now back in a wrestling ring for the first time since Owen Hart broke his neck on Raw back in September. But why is he facing Steve Blackman, who was previously shown to be his friend, well, let's flash back to eight days ago on Sunday Night Heat when Owen Hart was facing Blackman in a Lion's Den match with the neck brace wearing Severn acting as the special referee. And yes, you heard that correctly, they actually did a Lion's Den match on Sunday Night Heat. At one point, Blackman had Owen in his own move, the sharpshooter, so let's pick it up from there. He's, to, he's, got, the, he's got the sharpshooter on! Blackman, that's it! Gotta get, you gotta get your foot out of the center of the ring! Oh. Severn is just left down from the top. Oh, man. Did you see that? Damn, the Miz Hedges. Why did he go after? Why did he go after Blackman? Who knows? But you see, you see Blackman's head ran right into that pole. I mean, it was hard. What is Severn doing? What about the neck brace? He's got that dragon sleeper. That's it. That's it. Snap, crackle, pop. I thought Blackman was his friend. It's Owen Hardy should be going after. Snap, crackle, pop. I thought Severn was hurt. Obviously not. So yes, you heard that correctly. Despite the fact that it was Owen Hart who broke Severn's neck, when Blackman put Owen in the sharpshooter, Severn jumped down into the lion's den and attacked Blackman, putting him into the dragon's sleeper. Severn also ripped off his neck brace to show that he was no longer injured, just in case we didn't get the idea. So what was Severn's motivation here? Frankly, I have no fucking clue. I guess sometimes you just gotta swerve the fans, bro. 
But anyway, that sets up tonight's Severn versus Blackman match. Now, regarding Dan Severn, I know he's a legit badass who somehow comes across as intimidating despite his 1970s mustache, but everything he does in a wrestling ring looks incredibly awkward. His selling, his offense, it all just looks bad. If you go back and watch this match and some of his other ones, it's pretty easy to see why he never really connected with the WWF audience, even in the way that fellow former UFC competitor Ken Shamrock did. Not good. Not good stuff. And this was a pretty dull match as well. The finish came when Blackman hit Severn with a flying shoulder tackle, but then, when he went to pick Severn up, the Beast hit him with a low blow right in front of referee Jimmy Corderas, and that resulted in a disqualification victory for Blackman. Severn then hooked Blackman into the Dragon Sleeper once again until referees came into the ring to pull him away. So there you go, Dan Severn is back from injury, and it certainly seems like this new-look, aggressive attitude is going to make him a force to be reckoned with in the WWF going forward. So, of course, you know what I'm going to say now, don't you? Yes, that's right. This was Dan Severn's final Monday Night Raw match. He comes back from injury, starts a feud with Blackman, and then he's gone. In fairness, we will see him in the Royal Rumble match, but after that, he's working the house show circuit with Blackman until he departs the company in late February. And according to him, the reason he leaves the WWF is because they asked him to join the Ministry of Darkness and paint 666 on his forehead. Because, you know, his nickname is The Beast, and 666 is the number of the beast. Would that have been a good gimmick? You decide, but clearly, Severn was not a fan. Fun fact, in his 10-month tenure with the WWF, Severn suffered exactly one televised pinfall loss, and that was when The Rock beat him at King of the Ring 1998 when D'Lo Brown interfered and hit Severn with his brand new chest protector. So yes, even though he wasn't exactly a top star, the WWF certainly did feel the need to protect his character quite a bit, I'm assuming probably because they were afraid of him. But anyway, with that in mind, I think it's time that we send Dan the Beast Severn to wrestler heaven. Er, I mean, heaven. contract I go where does it say on my contract I have to lose to anybody what if I walk into your world of fantasy and turn fantasy into reality which one of your so-called stars or how many of your so-called stars am I going to make look pretty darn silly out there and the Royal Rumble was coming up and it even crossed my mind. WCW is still in existence. Maybe I'll go over and talk uh, to Eric Bischoff and to say, you know, when it's time for me to exit that ring, I'll turn fantasy into reality. And I'll clear that ring, just busting up everybody and their brother, and then Every 90 seconds, waiting for fresh meat to come on down. Now, this is live. This is a pay-per-view.
Now, with sheer numbers, they'll get me out of that ring. But they haven't got me out of the arena yet. What could that have been worth for one night? I think easily a million plus dollars. But some people might not have ever booked me once again. But at the same token, maybe other groups would have booked me even that much more. So there you go. Tune into the next episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast to find out if Dan Severn turns the rumble into a shoot and beats the shit out of everyone. Fingers crossed. We then cut backstage where we see Stone Cold Steve Austin just standing around drinking a beer as if he'd be doing anything else. But then we cut elsewhere backstage where we see Mankind and the Big Boss Man still brawling with each other. Their hardcore rules match has not officially started yet, but it looks like no one gave them that memo because they're kicking each other's asses all over the place. And after a commercial break, we actually get a video recap of the Mankind Rock feud in order to hype up their I Quit match this Sunday at the Royal Rumble. Mankind has been thrown off the top of Hell in a Cell, competed in Japanese death matches, and taken all sorts of punishment, so how could The Rock possibly make him say, I quit? I guess we'll see if he does in just a few days. And when that montage concludes, we go back to the arena, where Mankind and the Big Boss Man have now emerged from the locker room, and they're brawling in the aisleway. Mankind gets the better of him initially, throwing Boss Man into the guardrail and the steel steps. From there, he rolls Bossman into the ring, and that causes referee Earl Hebner to sound the bell, so even though this is hardcore rules, apparently both men had to enter the ring before it could become an official match? Oh, sure, why not? And on a related note, if we flash back to seven weeks ago, you may recall that the big boss man is actually the guy who defeated Mankind in a ladder match on Raw to take Foley's hardcore title from him, so perhaps Mankind can extract some revenge tonight. Now, the early portion of this match was actually pretty dull, and pretty much just consisted of Mankind working over Bossman with punches in the corner. However, both men then headed outside the ring, and of course, we got to the portion where Mick Foley needed to take a horrendous bump because he clearly hasn't yet proven his dedication to the business. So both men brawled near the commentator's table, with Mankind throwing Bossman face-first into a steel chair. However, when Foley walked back over toward him, the Bossman picked Mankind up for a back suplex and dropped him onto the chair right on the back of his head, the impact of which caused the seat of the chair to collapse. Watching these shows week to week, it really seems like Mick Foley is trying to invent new ways to take vicious, sick-looking bumps. And, uh, more on that next time, by the way. And then, I kid you not, a mere ten seconds later, Bossman punches Mankind, knocking him down to the arena floor, where he's now seated right next to the steel steps. So what does Bossman do? He grabs Mankind's hair and smacks the back of his skull against the steps four times. Good lord. And once they show a replay of the chair bump, Jerry the King Lawler then proceeds to grace us with a bit of commentary, which you likely will never hear on a WWE broadcast in the present day. You know, that is a horrifying sentence. That's got to be a concussion. I mean, here's a man who's obviously suffered multiple concussions. I mean, how many brain cells do you think mankind has left? Yeesh. Well, at least one person was paying attention back in 1999, I guess. So anyway, the match continues, and Mankind manages to hit Bossman with a double-arm DDT, followed by, you guessed it, Mr. Socko. However, when Foley has Socko in Bossman's mouth, The Rock runs out from backstage, and he has a steel chair with him. When The Rock enters, Mankind is bent over, clearly exposing his back for a perfect chair shot, but does Rock go for his back? Of course not. The Rock nails Mankind in the back of the head with the chair instead, because obviously he was listening to Jerry Lawler's commentary and he took it as a challenge. 
And by the way, when Rock hits Mankind with the chair, referee Earl Hebner calls for the bell. I repeat, in a hardcore rules match, it appears that we just had a disqualification finish. Speaking of killing brain cells, I think several of mine just shut down entirely trying to process the logic of that. So Rock goes to the commentary table, grabs a headset, and says that he's going to make Mankind scream I quit at the Royal Rumble. He then says that he has a gift for his millions and millions of fans, so he re-enters the ring, puts the chair down on the ground, picks Mankind up, and hits him with a rock bottom right onto the chair. And of course, it appears that the back of Foley's head hits the chair on the way down, to which Lawler then further tries to drive home the point by saying, quote, That's about concussion number nine tonight. Yikes. So Rock then poses on the turnbuckle and heads backstage as the commentators speculate as to what will happen this Sunday at the Royal Rumble. Spoiler alert, if you're enjoying seeing the Rock clobber mankind with unprotected chair shots to the skull, well, then that will certainly be the ideal match for you. Stay tuned to the next episode for that one. But before we wrap up this segment, here's a quick fun fact for you. Instead of the big boss man facing Mankind in a hardcore rules match on this show, according to the Wrestling Observer, the initial plan here was for Terry Funk to return and challenge Mick for the title. You may recall that Foley and Funk had a really fun hardcore match in May of 1998 where they brawled all throughout the arena, and I'm sure the Funker would have brought the goods again here. Unfortunately, the day before this episode was taped, Funk was hospitalized due to complications from hepatitis. Yikes. Probably for the best that he wasn't competing then. And as a quick side note, if you want to hear a gross hepatitis-related wrestling story, go read up about the Hell in a Cell match from Armageddon 2005. Or, uh, don't. That's probably the better option. Anyway, we then cut backstage, where we see Mark Henry begging China not to do whatever it is she's about to do, because Mark's mother is actually in the audience tonight. China tells him, quote, The choice is yours, Mark, but sexual chocolate keeps unsuccessfully pleading with her. And after a commercial break, we then go elsewhere backstage, where Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, The Rock, and Kane are in an office. Last night on Sunday Night Heat, Commissioner Shawn Michaels relayed a message to the corporation that tonight on Raw, The Rock and Kane would have to go one-on-one against each other. So because of this, Vince then tells Kane in no uncertain terms that there will be a match between the two of them, but Kane will essentially have to lie down for The Rock. Kane then storms off angrily, so I guess we'll see how that ends up playing out later tonight. From there, we go back to the arena where China is heading to the ring. In case you need a reminder, last week China won the Corporate Royal Rumble, which means she earned the right to enter at number 30 in the Royal Rumble match this Sunday. And also last week, Mark Henry took a low blow from Terry Runnels, so China and her friend Sammy helped Mark walk backstage. China then went to go get some water for Mark, leaving him alone with Sammy. And then last night on Sunday Night Heat, China informed Mark that he has 24 hours to come clean to the world, so that's where we stand at this point. So yes, China calls out Mark Henry, and a reluctant sexual chocolate does indeed emerge from backstage. And while he's walking to the ring, as mentioned earlier, we get a shot of his mother seated ringside. Fun fact, Mark's hometown of Silsby, Texas, is less than half an hour away from Beaumont, where tonight's episode takes place, so it's a pretty easy trip for Mrs. Henry to make. So Mark enters the ring, and, well, let's just pick it up from there. What could, what could this be about? Oh, China, 24 hours to come clean, 24 hours are up, Mark. What's it gonna be? Are you gonna tell the truth? 
or am I gonna humiliate you in front of all these people and in front of your mother? The truth? Don't get it. Don't do this, please, I'm begging you. I'm begging you, please don't do it. Make a decision. Do what? What's she gonna okay. do? Okay, I lied. We didn't do nothing. What? We didn't do the wild thing. We didn't do the mild thing. We ain't do no thing. Okay, is that is that good enough? Please, just don't. Just <laughs> let me have the tape. Don't show him. Tape. My mom's here. Look. He confessed. Okay. Yeah, that's good enough, Mark. You wanted to screw me? Now you're screwed. Roll the footage anyway. What? Footage? Wait a minute. She, what? She's vindictive. Honey, it's gonna be okay. Oh my. Trust me, babe. <sighs> I know how to make you feel better, baby. Uh-oh. Mm. Mm. Oh. How's that feel, sweet? Feel good. Oh. Mm. Yeah, baby. Oh my gosh. Ooh. How's that, baby? Oh, that's good. Don't stop. Don't Tell stop. Me, Oh, you like that, baby? Oh, that is wonderful. Yeah. Oh, my. How you feel, Nancy? I feel good. Yeah. I feel like James Brown. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, that's my ass. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Tight. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. 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 What's he gonna beat us? What's wrong, what? They us. They did to me, oh. honey. That's why they call oh. me Sammy, baby. Yes, China cues up some footage that we didn't see last week where Mark Henry and Sammy are alone in the dressing room. Sammy locks the door and starts kissing Mark, and at one point, yes, her head drops down below frame, so you can probably guess what's going on there. She eventually comes back up and Mark starts grabbing her ass. Thankfully, this all gets pixelated, by the way. But then, when his hands wander down into another area, well, as you heard there, he found out that Sammy did indeed have a penis. Or, as Jerry Lawler puts it, a penis. Sammy then removed his wig to reveal that, yes, he was a man the entire time. And frankly, I think this revelation was only a surprise to Mark Henry, Jerry Lawler, and Michael Cole, because it was pretty obvious to everyone else in the world when Sammy debuted two weeks ago. And of course, because the WWF knew how to tastefully handle a cross-dressing angle back in 1999, 
they go the Ace Ventura route and have sexual chocolate immediately start vomiting into a nearby toilet. Classy. And as you heard, China said she would never have had sex with Mark Henry, and she finished the segment off by nailing him with a low blow. China then headed backstage as Mark went over to his mother, who grabbed him by the ear and spanked his ass for some reason. And after a commercial break, we got a quick cut backstage where Mark's mother was still spanking him, and I couldn't help but wonder if she was more upset about Mark lying about sleeping with China or the whole Sammy thing. Now, obviously this is a pretty infamous segment in Attitude Era lore, so I'm going to give you my quick take on it here. Watching this back in the present day, I couldn't help but to put myself in Mark Henry's shoes back at this point in time. I mean, two and a half years ago, you signed with the WWF right after representing your country in the Olympics. You get a 10-year contract, things are looking great, you probably think you're going to be a world champion in short order. And then fast forward to 1999, and you're doing a segment where you're unwittingly getting a BJ from a crossdresser in front of your mother. At this point in time, I'd have to wonder if I made the right career choice. I know there have been retroactive internet rumors stating this was actually the company's way of trying to get Mark Henry to quit, since they saw his 10-year contract as a bit of an albatross at the time, but obviously that's pure speculation. Regardless, retroactive kudos to Mark Henry, because he ended up lasting over 20 years with the company, including a Hall of Fame induction this past year, so suck on that, WWE. I guess you didn't get him to quit after all. But getting back to 1999, so far this year, we are now 3 for 3 on cringeworthy storylines. Two weeks ago, we had Terry Reynolds' miscarriage. Last week, we had The Undertaker sacrificing Dennis Knight. And this week, we had Mark Henry grabbing a handful of dong. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you peak Vince Russo. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You be the judge. From there, we cut backstage where Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe are bickering amongst each other. Apparently, they're going to face the aforementioned China in a handicap match tonight, and they make the case to each other as to who should be the one to get the winning pinfall. Briscoe says he's one of the greatest collegiate wrestlers from Oklahoma, while Patterson states that he was the first ever intercontinental champion, and as always, there was really funny banter between these two. Always good stuff. We then go back to the arena for our next match, Al Snow versus Goldust, who still has custody of Head. In case you need a quick reminder about this feud, Goldust stole Head from Al eight days ago on Heat. Goldust then cost Al his match last week on Raw by smacking him in the face with Head, which was now painted with Goldust's signature face paint. And then, last night on Heat, when Goldust was facing the Godfather, Al Snow emerged from under the ring, dressed as one of the Godfather's hoes, yep, that's right, more cross-dressing, and Al tried to take Head back. However, when he tried running away with Head, he found it a bit too difficult to run in high heels, so Goldust was able to chase after him and steal Head back. And okay, I'll admit, I actually did get a bit of a chuckle out of that. And so we go back to the arena where, according to Michael Cole, quote, the winner of this match gets Head. And I have to say, that pun is a lot less effective one segment after we just saw Sammy giving Mark Henry Head in the uh, figurative sense. So the match went for three and a half minutes and was actually not that great. If you want to see Al Snow deliver one of the worst Hurricane Ranas in history, by all means, go seek this one out. The finish of the match came when Al hit Goldust with a drop toe hold, then he transitioned into a Mazdral Cradle to pick up the one, the two, and the three. Al Snow has won the match, which means he has also earned the right to regain Head. Once the match concludes, referee Teddy Long gives Head back to Al, but then... Goldust hits Al with a spine buster. He then props Al up in the corner for shattered dreams, gets a running start, and kicks him right in the dick. 
Goldust then grabs Head and smacks Al in the face with it, and yet again, Goldust walks away with Head. Not very sporting of him to clearly ignore the rules of this match, if you ask me, but certainly, the good news here is that this feud must continue? Yay? From there, we get two quick backstage segments. Stone Cold Steve Austin gets himself some coffee, maybe he's trying to sober up, and the Stooges continue to bicker with each other over who Vince McMahon likes the best. And after a commercial break, we go back to the arena, where a purple robe-wearing Midian is near the commentary table, asking Cole and Lawler if they can feel the power. He nonsensically rants for a while, until that familiar music of the Druids plays, so Midian runs up toward the entranceway, where the Undertaker's badass-looking throne is now positioned. The Druids emerge from backstage, followed by the Acolytes and Paul Bearer. The music then switches to the Undertaker's theme, and, sure enough, he then walks out, dressed in his new black robe. He takes a seat on his throne, and proceeds to tell us what will happen a few days from now, and thankfully, unlike last week, he's speaking in real time as opposed to lip-syncing his promo. So let's listen to what The Undertaker has to say. Poor wretched souls. Your world is polluted with rotting souls. Seven nights passed. You witnessed one of these souls become one with the power of the darkness. Midian. He was once a forgotten face in a vast ocean of individuals abused by the corrupt politics of your world. Now, he sees what you cannot. He feels what you cannot. Seven nights ago, Dennis Knight ceased to exist, and Midian was giving everlasting life, as was all of my ministry. Tonight, I speak of prophecy, and what I will shall be done. The sacrifices not over and the ceremony has been scheduled for all who walk on the mortal side of life take heed on January 24th the next sacrificial lamb will be led to slaughter and your simple minds won't allow you to believe who the next victim will be. So attend if you dare. Resist and you subject yourself to agonizing pain and extreme suffering. So until we meet again, Accept the Lord of Darkness as your Savior. Allow the purity of evil to guide you. 
So once The Undertaker finishes speaking, just like last week, a lightning bolt strikes, causing one of his symbols to catch fire nearby. And for the record, I love how the quote-unquote cross-burning is such a non-issue at this point that they've done it two weeks in a row now. But anyway, there you have it. The Undertaker claims there will be another sacrifice at the Royal Rumble, and quote, Your simple minds won't allow you to believe who the next victim will be. And when he says that, I can only think, Wow, it sounds like he's really planning on going after someone very important. Who will it be? Well, uh, prepare to be underwhelmed. After a commercial break, we go back to the arena, where it is now time for the handicap match, China versus Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. As if China didn't already have enough on her plate humiliating Mark Henry, now she also has to compete in a handicap match, too. What a trooper. And in case you're wondering, instead of wrestling boots, China is actually wearing women's ankle boots with sweat socks poking out the top of them. Not exactly the pinnacle of fashion here. Now, for those of you scoring at home, this is the first actual wrestling match China has competed in since the September 14, 1998 episode of Raw. She won the Corporate Royal Rumble last week, but I'm not necessarily counting that as a standard match, and she was only in it for about 10 seconds. Despite that lack of recent competition, however, China certainly didn't seem to have too much trouble with the Stooges. As you might expect, this was pretty much just a comedy match, but it was well done and the fans were into it. One of the amusing spots early on featured Briscoe on his knees in one of the corners, with China then Irish whipping Patterson toward him, which resulted in Patterson going crotch first into Briscoe's head. And shortly thereafter, we got a spot where China had her back turned to Patterson, so that wily veteran then proceeded to hit China with a low blow. Of course, China completely no-sold it and put her hands up in the air as if to say, what the hell are you doing? I guess the joke here is that Patterson thought China was actually a man? How lovely. But on the plus side, Jerry Lawler gets the line of the night at this point when he says, quote, that's not Sammy, Pat, that's China. So China then responds to that low blow by grabbing both Patterson and Briscoe by their respective balls, which, surprisingly, gets a big reaction from the crowd. Beaumont, Texas loves the testicular claw, apparently. Patterson and Briscoe then start bickering with each other, so China just leaves them alone, walks over to the second rope, and sits down while they argue with each other. Eventually, Patterson goes over to China and shoves her, resulting in the ninth wonder of the world tumbling down to the arena floor. And from there, well, I'll play what happens next for you, because it's incredibly bizarre. Yes, Sable emerged from backstage, got about halfway down the aisle, and then Luna just beat the shit out of her with a strap, which caused Sable to have to be taken backstage for medical help. That's right, Sable was literally zero help to China whatsoever. I hope you all found this to be as hilariously unnecessary as I did. Essentially, in the middle of the China Stooges match, they just decided to do a 30-second spot to let people know that Sable would face Luna in a strap match at the Royal Rumble, and then Sable is just gone. 
And honestly, that's rather fitting because they've pretty much booked Sable to be a complete non-factor over the past few months, so why start making her look good now, I guess? Anyway, getting back to the match, Briscoe then hit China with, of all things, a people's elbow, and he went for the cover. However, Patterson wanted to get the pin, so he pulled Briscoe off before the three count. Patterson then went for the pin, and Briscoe pulled him off as well. The Stooges then started fighting each other, but eventually they got their act together, and Briscoe pulled out that old heel standby, the baby powder. Briscoe nailed China in the face with the baby powder, and then things got uncomfortable. Why? Because with China unable to see, the Stooges then started slapping her on the ass, and then they both jiggled her breasts, which actually gets pixelated on the network. But good lord, if you ever wanted to watch an episode of Raw where you could say, it was a different time, it would be this episode. Holy shit. Thankfully, China eventually gets her sight back, and she hits both Stooges with a DDT, and then she stacks them on top of each other. China then sits on top of both of them, and the referee counts the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of this handicap match, China. And of course, what could be more Attitude Era than the goofy comedy match being the longest match of the night? However, I will say, China gets a huge pop. This match somehow went for more than six minutes, but the crowd friggin' loved her, so they were up for it every step of the way. Clearly, China has a lot of momentum heading into the Royal Rumble, where she will have the prime position of entering at number 30. Will she win the whole thing and become the number one contender at WrestleMania 15? Well, Sal and I will cover that next week. So we then cut backstage where The Rock is with Vince and Shane. Vince assures Rock that Kane will do the right thing and lay down for him, even though Kane is, quote, a little retarded. Someone tweet that clip to Vince in the present day. I'm sure he'll really appreciate it. But that provides a fitting segue because, after a commercial break, it is now time for our main event, Kane versus The Rock, who is accompanied by all other members of the corporation except for Patterson and Briscoe. In case you need a reminder as to why this match is happening, last week on Raw, Kane was about to pin Mankind and become the new WWF champion, but The Rock broke up the pinfall because he wanted to ensure that his match with Mankind at the Rumble would be for the title. From there, The Rock then laid out Kane with three disgusting chair shots to the skull, which is seemingly becoming his gimmick lately. And as a result of that, last night on Heat, Commissioner Shawn Michaels, despite being laid up in a hospital bed, did indeed book Rock vs. Kane for tonight's show, so that's where we currently stand. This week, instead of wearing his tracksuit to the ring, Rock is instead wearing what he calls his $500 shirt, so at least he's looking a bit more corporate this time around. Before the match can begin, Vince McMahon grabs a microphone, and amusingly, it appears that he asks Kane to reenact WCW's finger poke of doom from a few weeks ago. Thank you. Don't be getting your hopes up here, because nothing is going to happen. Okay? All you gotta do is just do the finger and the chest routine. He falls down, we go home out. And you've got it this time, right? Oh, one of those, but I'm not so sure that's going to happen. To you. Does he I have said, it? You've got it this time, right? All right. Hey, listen. Not here in public. Don't. Don't do anything stupid. Don't do anything stupid. Told him not to do anything stupid. Oh. 
Watch it, Rock. I'm warning you. I'm warning you, don't do anything stupid. Let's just start this match, okay? And you fall down. Ready, right? So as you heard there, Vince asked Kane to lay down for The Rock, but instead, the Big Red Machine responded with that gesture that I like to call, I flip you off without flipping you off, where you kind of thrust your fist into the air. From there, the rest of the corporation jumped Kane and started beating the crap out of him. And then, once the damage was done, The Rock asked the corporation to leave the ring, and he told referee Tim White to ring the bell, so yes, it appears that we do have an actual match here. Rock quickly clotheslines Kane over the top rope, and then he does his customary routine, where he takes Michael Cole's headset and provides some commentary. And Rock immediately gives us a quality line when he tells Jerry Lawler not to say anything, because his outfit says enough. Boy, does it ever. Kane then walks over toward Rock and grabs him by the throat, but Rock manages to escape by kicking him in the balls. Rock then puts the headset back on and gives us another quality line when he says that kicking Kane between his legs, quote, Felt like kicking a pillow. Alrighty then. Back in the ring, Rock nails Kane with a clothesline, and then follows it up with, you guessed it, the corporate elbow, although he doesn't have an elbow pad to throw because he's wearing his $500 shirt. Rock then stands over Kane and starts taunting him, but the big red machine grabs him by the throat, picks him up, and nails him with a choke slam. That causes the rest of the corporation to run into the ring and start beating on Kane once again. This time, however, Kane receives some backup because your WWF champion Mankind then runs to the ring and nails several corporation members in the head with a chair. The Rock then rolls out of the ring, so Mankind chases him up the aisle. Rock has a stare down with Foley, but what he doesn't realize is that Stone Cold Steve Austin has now emerged from backstage, and he's standing right behind him. Rock finally turns around and sees Stone Cold, and that provides the opening Mankind needs to nail Rock in the back with the chair. We then go off the air with Austin flipping off Vince while Mankind continues his beatdown of The Rock. A very fitting end to the show, I'd say, since it sets up the two main storylines for the Royal Rumble this Sunday, Mankind vs. The Rock and Stone Cold vs. Vince at the start of the Rumble match itself. Call your local cable company to order now. But of course, we're not done yet, so on that note, let's take it to The Wrap-Up. Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. Cause WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, Raw just kept motoring along, defeating Nitro in the ratings 5.5 to 4.99. And this week, we had almost the exact same result as Raw put up a 5.55 to Nitro's 4.87. Pretty much only a fraction of a point difference for both shows. Normally, that might actually be good news for WCW, since a 4.87 is a very strong rating for cable at this time, but this particular show aired the night after their sold-out pay-per-view, and clearly they weren't able to capture much interest from the WWF crowd. 
Regarding Sold Out, pretty much the only noteworthy matches were Goldberg defeating Scott Hall in a ladder match, where the object was to retrieve a stun gun, because clearly, the more we can call back to that infamous Starcade main event, the better. And the other important match saw Ric Flair and his son David Flair defeat Kurt Hennig and Barry Windham. And by the way, I recommend watching this match purely for the finish, because it is unintentionally hilarious. Hennig is about to hit David Flair with a perfect plex, but Iron Anderson runs into the ring and clobbers Hennig in the back of the head with a tire iron. And because this is David Flair's first match, Hennig clearly doesn't trust him to do the right thing, so before Hennig falls to the ground, he literally grabs David's t-shirt and pulls David on top of himself so the younger Flair can pin him. Seriously, go watch this sometime. Hennig basically forces David Flair to pin him. It's incredibly bizarre. And then, after the match, the new NWO hits the ring, where they proceed to handcuff Rick to the ring ropes. From there, they hold David down, and Hulk Hogan then whips his back with his weight belt, not one, not two, but eight times, as Rick tearfully looks on, unable to do anything about it. This is actually a really effective heel beatdown, I have to say, but in real life, Rick was none too pleased about it. And here's a quick excerpt from his 2004 autobiography, To Be the Man. David didn't say a word, he took it like a man. You had Kurt Hennig and Barry Windham, two of the best performers during their primes, and they bounced around for every one of David's moves. My son couldn't do anything, and they made him look like a star. And then there was Hogan, with all his experience and all his celebrity, trying to be cute. He whipped David like a dog. It was sickening, and I'll never forgive him for it. Flair later ends up addressing this incident on his podcast, too, saying that Hogan later apologized for it, and for the record, David was actually pretty proud of the segment, but there you go, as if Ric Flair needed another reason to hate Hogan. Now he has one. So, anyway, that was the important stuff from Sold Out, and here's what happened on Nitro the night after. Booker T defeated Chris Jericho. David Flair defeated Eric Bischoff in a winner-gains-control-of-the-company-hair-versus-hair match, and yes, you heard that correctly. And by the way, for the second night in a row, we got a shitty finish involving David Flair because he punched Bischoff while holding a roll of quarters, and it's one of the worst-looking punches in the history of wrestling. However, David wins, and we got the added bonus after the match of seeing Bischoff get his head shaved, which was pretty cool to watch because when they shaved his dyed black hair, you could see that it was nothing but gray underneath. And Larry Zbysko actually gets in a pretty good line here when he says, He's aging 20 years before my very eyes! Funny stuff. Continuing on, Bobby Duncan Jr. and Mike Enos versus the Faces of Fear went to a no contest. What a shame. Disco Inferno defeated Wrath. Scott Steiner defeated Perry Saturn to retain his world television title. Psychosis defeated Juventud Guerrera. Rey Mysterio defeated Lex Luger via disqualification. And in your main event, Goldberg versus Scott Hall versus Bam Bam Bigelow ended in a no contest when the NWO ran into the ring for the Schmoz finish. And in other happenings, the aforementioned Ray Mysterio was interviewed by Mean Gene Okerlund, who asked him about his mask. Ray said that no one has ever taken his mask away from him, and no one ever will, so you can probably figure out where that's going. And, in a fun little side moment, we got a clip of the groundbreaking ceremony for The Nitro Grill, a WCW-themed restaurant which will open in Las Vegas in May of 1999. Spoiler alert, it doesn't even last for a year and a half. Fortunately, though, you can actually find pictures of the menu online, so I'm going to go ahead and let you know some of the items you could have ordered if you managed to dine at this fine establishment. And yes, these are all real. Macho Man Nachos. 
Booker T-Bone, Big Sexy Porterhouse, The Goldburger, Crippler Crossface Cheesesteak, I assume you take one bite of that and you end up choking to death, Figure Four Fajitas, Raven Cajun Pasta, Cheesecake Uncensored, which uh, I guess would be a cheesecake with a dick drawn on it, who knows, and The Chocolate Power Bomb, which kind of sounds like something you would be doing later on in the very likely event that you contracted food poisoning at the restaurant. So that's the Nitro Grill for you. Would it have been a horrible dining experience? Probably. Am I bitter that I didn't get to go before it closed? Absolutely. But on that note, let's take it to the raw synopsis. So this was a solid episode, but honestly, for the go-home show before the Royal Rumble, I did expect bigger things. Instead, it pretty much confirms what we already knew. The Rumble is going to be a two-match show, and they're just throwing together some other matches on top of it to fill out the card. Sable vs. Luna has had only a tiny bit of build-up, while X-Pac vs. Gangrel has literally had zero build-up. I mean, Christ, those two haven't even shared a screen together at any point, and yet somehow they're scheduled to face each other in a title match at the second biggest pay-per-view of the year. Sure, why not? When it comes to the undercard, Ken Shamrock vs. Billy Gunn is clearly the feud they've spent the most time getting over, and as I said earlier, they are doing a very good job with that one. I didn't expect to be so invested in it since, shall we say, neither man is much of a microphone general, but they've pretty much been at each other's throats over the past few weeks, and I'm really eager to see that match. Other than that, this was clearly a very strong episode for China, who not only found the time to humiliate Mark Henry, but also to defeat Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe in a handicap match. On top of the fact that she earned the right to enter the Rumble at number 30, it's pretty cool to see how much of a push she's been getting over the past few weeks, and the fans are right on board with it. And getting back to Mark Henry, well, if there's one thing you can say about him, it's that he was certainly up for anything when it came to these goofy angles. Certainly his, uh, romance with Sammy will live on forever, but, well, let's just say he's going to end up having more of these moments throughout the Attitude Era, for better or for worse. Uh, mostly worse. And before we finish up, here are some quick notes from the edition of the Wrestling Observer, which was released for the week of this show. Terry Taylor quit his position as a road agent and booker with WCW, and he's jumping ship over to the WWF. That's right, folks. The Red Rooster has returned. Big news for Kayentai this week, as Taka Michinoku asked for his release from the WWF, but they refused to grant it to him. Men's Teo and Dick Togo also asked for their releases from the company, and the WWF did indeed let them go. Fair enough. As for Funaki, well, I think you know he isn't going anywhere for quite a while. Regarding the strap match between Sable and Luna Vachon, Meltzer says that Sable's husband, Mark Merrow, was very vocal about not wanting the match to take place because Sable doesn't have the proper in-ring training and he thinks it would be dangerous for her. Not sure why, it's just a fucking leather strap, but whatever. Meltzer also reports that Sable is not happy constantly being portrayed as a sex object, which is why that particular role seems to be transitioning over to Deborah lately. However, despite Sable not wanting to be portrayed in that manner, this week it was officially announced that she will be on the cover of the April 1999 edition of Playboy. And for teenage wrestling fans all over the world, I'm sure there was much rejoicing. And finally, Meltzer has a quick note about a fitness model who appeared on the Canadian television show Off the Record, claiming that she wants to become a valet in the WWF. That model's name? Trish Stratus. I hope it works out for her. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. 
As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, just like our friend StuHave1987 did, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. And don't forget, patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast, where you can get all sorts of bonus content. I have nothing further to add about this episode, and so, to get you in the proper frame of mind for our upcoming Royal Rumble episode with Sal from WrestleMania Salvation, I will now leave you with the final clip of Shane McMahon training Vince for the Rumble match this Sunday. Will it ultimately prove to be effective? I guess we'll find out in the next episode. So enjoy that clip, and I will catch you next time. Let me tell you something, Austin. This all started when I was the last line of defense, number 30. You were number 30. We have a whole new strategy right now. When all else fails, I was going to sacrifice myself. I was going to be the last person there to make sure you didn't win the Royal Rumble. Number 30 has to work, obviously, because now Mr. Michaels is making number two. That crooked commissioner, Shawn Michaels, who makes me number two. Number two. Number two. Number two. That's all right. You got to strike fast. You got to strike first. You have to beat him in. Thanks to my son, Shane, I'm ready for it. Look up there. Look at all the who's that. That stone cold Steve Austin. You know something, Austin? I'm ready for you, too. Because as badly as you think you want me in the ring, I want you just as badly. That's Austin. Look at him. That's Austin right there. Let Eat me tell you something. Hit him up. When I get in that ring with you, I'm going to get me some. Oh, yeah. A whole lot. Here we go. Nice clothesline. This Sunday, this Sunday, you own Austin. It's going to get nasty, Austin. That's Austin. some strange way I am eliminated from the Royal Rumble, then I got a hundred thousand reasons, Austin, why you're not going to make it, why you're not going to win the Royal Rumble. Just remember this, Austin, this Sunday, there is no chance in hell of you winning the Royal Rumble. Austin's going down. Actually, over. Get your cameras ready. He was number two in the Royal Rumble, number one in your heart.